0: the Historic Historical Society on September twenty third, 1966. His subject was the Housatonic River and its tidewater land.
1: Thank you very much for that very flattering introduction, Mr. Miller. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I have been requested to talk to you this evening about the Housatonic River. To cover this story thoroughly would consume more time than we have available. So I shall limit my remarks mainly to the Tidewater section of our waterway. Some of the following material was presented before your society in 1958. For those of you who have heard this story and desire to catch up on a little sleep, it is permissible to do so, but please don't snore. (laughs) The story of the Housatonic River and Valley is an extensive and interesting one. While we in this area think only of the tidewater section of the river, when the subject of the river is being discussed, yet the greater portion of the earlier history pertains to that section above high, uh, tidewater. This great valley extends in a northerly direction 160 miles from the mouth of the river to the vicinity of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. There is geological evidence that the river and valley were far wider than at present. The land adjacent to the banks of the river consists of the most verdant farmlands. With the coming of the whites in 1613, this land was purchased and I underline the word purchase, for from one to 10 cents an acre from the Indians who inhabited the area. There were six tribes of Indians who occupied the land adjacent to the river. These were known as the Weepowags at Milford, the Pequanicks at Bridgeport, the Fagassets at Derby, the ducks at Shelton, the Weananocks at New Milford, and the Weetogs at the Massachusetts border. A sub-tribe of the Pequanics was known as the Cuppies. This is the tribe which inhabited the land where the town of Stratford is now located. River Indians lived in villages composed of two or three families and ranging up at times to 100 families or more. The men raised tobacco, while the women did the remainder of the work necessary to promote existence. Each spring, most of the Indians migrated to the Great Falls of New Milford to fish for shad and in the summer continued their travels to Long Island Sound. All the Indians of the valley were one people in way of life. In the land deals between the whites and Indians, money, tools, weapons, blankets were used to barter. The same exchange was used between the white men The colonists loathed the Indians for their filth, drunkenness, thievery, and pilfering. Nevertheless, they tried trespasses, larcenies, murders in their courts, giving them the benefit of the same rules that they themselves enjoyed. They did ostracize them socially and biologically. They tried to keep liquor and firearms from them. They gave them equal rights under equal laws including access to the schools. The failure of the Indian was his own. He had a desire to acquire the white man's ways, yet had an inability to accept discipline. He lacked the mental force to build or destroy. The whites came with the power to do either. We have talked of the Indians. Let's get to the river itself. The Housatonic rises in the Berkshire Hills of western Massachusetts and Connecticut. Flows mostly in a southerly direction 132 miles to its mouth where it empties into Long Island Sound between Milford and Stratford points. Its principal tributary is the Nogdick River, which joins the Housatonic near Derby. From the mouth, the river is navigable for a distance of 11 and one-half nautical miles, or about one mile above the town of Shelton. Small vessels for many years could anchor abreast of Stratford, but as a result of storms encountered in this area since 1938, the anchorage areas have shown to such an extent that it is now difficult to find sufficient space with adequate water to moor vessels of any size. We hope that in the near future, suitable mooring areas will again be available. Now, I made a little note there. Uh, Bear in mind, this uh, material was collected in 1958. There have been some changes in the last eight years. And I note here, the problem has been partially solved by the establishment of marinas. Uh, That is uh, as most of you know uh, the driving of piles, the forming of slips and floats and so forth and the boats are moored uh, in these slips rather than uh, the old way that uh, we used to do it on uh, anchors and cables and chains and so forth. It has helped out Enormously. On the east side of the entrance, a breakwater has been constructed, and this is marked at its south end by a flashing red light. On the west side of the entrance, we have the Stratford Point light, concerning which we will speak later. Okanuk, the chief of the Cupigs, led his tribe during the summer months to the shores of the Sound and spent the pleasant weather fishing, clamming, and consuming great quantities of shellfish, which this area abundantly supplied. The discarding of the shells gives us an idea of the source of material which later gave our citizens an occupation known as shelling. These shells were retrieved and transported to the shores of Nell's Island forming the large heaps so familiar to us about 25 or more years ago. These shells were later planted on the sound oyster beds to receive the spawn or set of the live oyster. The river has been known by many names, such as Putatuck, Falls River, Stratford Great River, River of the Red Hills. This name derived from the sand dunes at Stratford Point. The Dutch, who were the original whites, referred to the river as Hook. The present name of Housatonic, we believe, was an Indian name meaning beyond the mountains place. And I find, in going back in some of the very old history, Indian histories, that the Indians who migrated to this section, and of which we spoke uh, further back, came from the Hudson River, came from the area of the Hudson River. And that is how they came to call the Housatonic beyond the mountains place. Records show us that Captain Adrian Block, a Dutchman, for whom Black Island was named, touched the shores of Connecticut in 1613. One of the first places he landed was Cuppy, and he was the one who gave the name of River of the Red Hills to the Housatonic. Between 1613 and 1642, an interesting period of colonization took place. This however is so extensive, the forming of the colonies and the final forming of the towns and so forth up through the valley that uh, I have made a separate story out of that and I'm afraid uh, it would be too lengthy for uh, use this evening. We find that in 1642 a trading post was established at Derby and in 1648 appears our first record of a regular ferry service across the river between Stratford and Milford. Let us at this point consider our ferries for the entire period period during which they served. Our first ferry was a scow about 20 feet overall, operated by Moses Wheeler, for whom our new Turnpike Bridge has been named. The power was produced by very crude oars. The fare was halfpenny a person, and twopence, as they put it, for a horse or beast, for the inhabitants and for other travellers, twopence per person, and a fourpence for horse or beast. In 1690, the ferry was leased to Mr. Wheeler's son. For 21 years, the Wheeler lease eventually expired, and we find a Richard Blacklatch as ferryman for 21 years. In October 1733, John Benjamin appears as ferryman, and the fare was increased to a penny and sixpence for horse or beast. There had been, during these years, numerous attempts to establish a base for a ferry on the Milford side, but without success. The earliest mention of a ferry, of a Milford ferry, was in 1674. Again, we read of it in 1691. This time it was stated that if Mr. Wheeler failed to fulfill his duties, the Milford ferry should be established. Evidently, the surface was not too good. Nothing, however, came of the proposition. We again find a reference to the Milford Ferry in 1697, but our record does not show whether it was started or, if started, how long it operated. In 1712, we find an agreement between Milford and Richard Blacklatch in which a bond of 20 pounds is mentioned. In 1720, a committee was appointed to rent the existing ferry for a period not exceeding seven years. Apparently, this action did not materialize. In 1731, it was voted by the town of Milford to accept a grant from the General Assembly to establish a ferry on the east side of the river, known as the Stratford River. In 1758, the matter was again before the General Assembly to establish a ferry base on the east side of the river. There now appears a record of Josiah Curtis of Stratford as ferryman. A town meeting was called in Stratford to consider the establishment of the Milford Ferry. There was much opposition. Representatives of Stratford together with ferryman Curtis, having appeared before the General Assembly, it was then resolved to grant Milford the liberty and privilege of keeping a boat on the east side upon their erecting a dwelling house at or near the ferry. Mr. Curtis, at this time, complained about ferrying soldiers across the river without pay. He asked to be reimbursed and was granted a small amount. In 1761, Peter Hepburn, for those of you who are familiar with the Memorial Bridge in norford well remember that name of Hepburn. He was a very influential man uh, back in those days in the town of Milford. In 1761, Peter Hepburn was operating the Milford Ferry, and he claimed that he had been forgotten by the Milford authorities and requested that he be allowed to keep a public house of entertainment. His request was granted. The Milford Ferry continued to operate until 1798, at which time the town voted to sell the property if it could get 750 pounds for it. The sale was made to Joseph Hopkins, who at the same time leased the Stratford Ferry. In 1802, much criticism of the ferries caused a petition for a bridge to be presented to the General Assembly And in 1804, the first bridge was built and the ferry service discontinued after serving the public for more than 150 years. Speaking of bridges across the Housatonic, the first one of which we have a record was erected at New Milford in 1737. This bridge was located at the spot where the Bennett Street Bridge now stands. It was carried away in 1802, about the same time that Stratford and Milford were considering their first bridge. When the right to erect the Stratford-Milford Bridge was granted, Derby lost a fight which was generations old. Derby had amazingly become a shipping and fishing poet and was rapidly becoming a manufacturing town. In 1824, the steamer General Lafayette paddled up the river to Derby from New York. This event caused much excitement among the people lining the banks. In 1830, Derby was producing many articles for general use, such as hook skirts, pins, tacks, paper, sheet copper, copper wire, augers, carriage axles, springs, nails, and flannels. The rivers still flowed undammed between the bluffs of Shelton and Derby. The factories continued to increase in number and in 1865 There were 13 factories on the Housatonic above uh, Tidewater manufacturing hook skirts, and a number of them were boldly exploring the corset business. (laughs) Iron ore of a superior quality was discovered at Salisbury, Connecticut. Of course, this was well up the river. I might add uh, briefly that some remains of the old mines, the old uh, smelting works and so forth are still in existence in Salisbury and uh, very interesting to look over if you're interested in history. A founding was established on this project cast the guns which were installed on the Constellation, the Constitution, and the fort in the Battery of New York. Trade between Derby and the West Indies was at its height. Derby was a port of entry and paid heavy duties to the government. Fishing uh, interests were also opposed to the erection of the stratford Milford Bridge. Shad fishing flourished and shad sold at fourpence and sixpence each and the fishermen claimed the traffic on the bridge would scare the fish away. (laughs) Hot debates followed and the assembly was requested to prevent the construction of the bridge at all hazards. But the proponents of the bridge finally won and in 1802, Jonathan Sturgis and others under the name of the Stratford and Milford Bridge Company was granted permission to erect a bridge at the ferry place. The expense of building and maintaining the bridge was to be defrayed by the payment by the users of the bridge of tolls. It was ruled that before the bridge company could retain the income from the tolls, they must reimburse the town of Stratford and Joseph Hopkins, the ferryman, for damages incurred by the discontinuance of the ferry. It was decided that the bridge should have a 32-foot draw span. For those of us who use bridges now, that uh, you can visualize what 32 feet wide would be to get some of these vessels through. And no charge was to be made to vessels for passing through. The bridge must have piers and fenders to support and protect it, and to aid in warping vessels through. It must be lighted, except when the moon shone. (laughs) Two oil lamps were maintained for this purpose. In 1806, the first bridge carried away. There was much rejoicing and derby. (laughs) The whole town turned out for a general celebration. But the bridge company, having changed its name to the Washington Bridge Company, bravely set out to rebuild. In 1807, with the aid of a $40,000 lottery, in which some Derby residents, ironically, won substantial amounts, the bridge was rebuilt and opened to the public in 1813. The General Assembly at this time voted that no other bridge should be built within six miles of the Washington Bridge. We will hear more of that particular ruling later in the story. David Lacy, a shoemaker, was the builder of the Second Washington Bridge. (laughs) About 1800, he purchased a big house on the Milford approach to the bridge. This house later became known as the Riverside Hotel. It was torn down in 1920. Mr. Lacy became owner of a substantial share of the bridge company and managed the bridge for over 60 years. This bridge was wider than some of the succeeding bridges. It was located south of the present bridge. It had a lift draw operated by ropes over pulleys. You can visualize what sort of a rig that was. It created a lot of enemies for itself up and down the river. It was a slow bridge to operate. The master of one vessel, becoming incensed by the delay, fired upon the bridge with a cannon and damaged the woodwork. (laughs) There were several instances of trouble, and after some court procedure, the trouble ceased. In 1845, large steamboats were using the river extensively and a wider draw was needed. A bill was presented to the General Assembly asking for a 60-foot draw. It passed both houses but was vetoed by the governor. The bill was passed (coughs) over the veto, but the bridge company refused to comply. In 1846, the case was taken to court, and the decision was in favor of the bridge company. As a test case, the steamer Salem was loaded and headed up the river to Derby. She was 10 feet wider than the draw span. (laughs) And as a result, she jammed in the opening of the draw. She was stuck two hours and finally backed out. She was docked at Stratford, and smaller vessels took the load to Derby. Soup was instituted to cover the expense. I referred farther back in this story to a ruling prohibiting another bridge within six miles of the Washington Bridge. About 1848, the New York-New Haven Railroad wished to build a bridge over the river. And this clause in the bridge agreement prohibited another bridge. Just get get this little passage here uh, just to show you that there was plenty of political finagling way back in those days. (laughs) At this point, the railroad offered to buy the Washington Bridge. Widen the draw to 60 feet if the pending lawsuit was withdrawn. The deal was made. The draw widened. The bridge was returned to the bridge company. This bridge served for 60 years, and it suddenly went out of commission, commission causing quite a sensation. The draw collapsed, In July of 1868, it fell on the steamer monitor while she was passing through the draw, blocking the passage of larger vessels. What happened apparently was the fact that uh, much of the debris from the bridge sank to the bottom of the channel and thereby blocked the channel for the use of vessels drawing any great amount of water. No one aboard the vessel was hurt, but some youngsters on the riverbank received injuries. That's something else. If you've ever driven up in your car to a drawbridge when vessels are passing through, it it's a must that everybody gets out and uh, walked to the edge of the bridge and watched the vessel run through and holding up the closing of the bridge and so forth and so on. However, that's human nature, I guess. This accident was a death blow to Derby as a seaport. It was necessary for highway traffic to detour 20 miles. This situation lasted between four and five years The bridge company either refused or were unable to rebuild the bridge. In 1870, the legislature authorized Stratford, Milford, Bridgeport, and New Haven to receive all the property owned by the bridge company and to construct at a cost not exceeding $30,000 a bridge with an 80-foot draw. Just visualize that $30,000 to build a bridge. This act was approved by the towns with the exception of New Haven, which was afraid of losing Milford trade to Bridgeport if the bridge was rebuilt. In 1872, committees worked on the plan and after much discussion and changing of dimensions, from 80 to 60 feet, the bridge was finally completed in 1873. This was the third Washington Bridge and was used from 1872 until 1894. The tolls still remain on the use of the bridge. In 1889, the towns controlling the bridge were authorized to transfer all rights and interests to New Haven and Fairfield counties, which were to take charge and operate the bridge as a free public bridge without tow. In 1892, a new drawbridge was needed, and the iron bridge, which immediately preceded the present Washington Bridge, was erected at a cost of $8,500, less the approaches. It opened to the public in 1894. Trolley cars first passed over the bridge in 1897. The present Basquiel Bridge was erected in 1921. It has a 125-foot draw span with a 32-foot clearance above mean high water. The bridge derived its name from the fact that General Washington crossed the river at this point 132 years earlier to assume command of the Continental Army. We now have several other bridges which cross our river. We noticed earlier in this record that in 1848 the New Haven Railroad had purchased the Washington Bridge and after reconstructing it, turned it back to the bridge company. We believe that this deal eliminated the six-mile restriction passed in 1813 because a few years later, the railroad built its first railroad bridge across the river in about 1889. This bridge is only a mile above the Washington Bridge. The first railroad bridge was replaced in the early 1900s by the bascule, by the present bascule bridge, operated first by an internal combustion engine and now by electric.
2: Continuing our bridge record, the next to be built was the bridge for the Merritt Parkway, about three miles above the railroad bridge. The last bridge to cross the river is the Connecticut Turnpike Bridge, located only 175 feet below the railroad bridge and using the same fenders. At Tidewater Head, we have two bridges serving Shelton, Ansonia, and Jersey. This concludes our bridge record, and we will now record some of the vessels using the river. During the time that Derby was a shipping port for the Norfolk Valley, many vessels navigated the river. There seems to be some controversy over the date when these boats operated. Dayton's Steamboat Days, published in 1928 and accepted by the Steamboat Historical Society as being authentic, states that the Antonia, built in 1848, was the first steamer to make regular trips on the Derby, New York run. He was later known as the Robert A. Snyder and ran on the Hudson River. He was commanded by Captain Demering and the Norwalk, commanded by Captain Peck in 1849, ran on the Derby route in 1854. He became the Aurora and was last known as the Oriental on the Providence River run. Then came the Monitor, which was the victim of the bridge accident, and then the Nauggetus. And here our records go haywire. I find in the Bridgeport newspaper, the Standard, of March 1st, 1845, an advertisement stating that the Navigator, which was described as a new vessel, would begin running on the derby line April 1st, 1845. It seems to me that the paid newspaper advertisement should be the more authentic of the two dates. If this be true, the first steamer, the Ansonia, must have been built and run at a much earlier date. Following the north came the Housatonic, and she was followed by the Ruggles. The Derby, New York line was managed by Hitch Smith, and continued in operation until 1883. The Monitor was a side-wheeler built in 1862, and was only six years old when the Washington Bridge collapsed on her. She later went to the Hudson River on the Peekskill Run, and in 1872 was broken up at Jersey City. I had a very interesting thing happen to me about uh, three years ago, I think it was. Uh, Mr. John Ross, who is a member of your society, I don't think he's here this evening, uh, is very much interested in boats, also very much interested in antiques. And I believe he and his son were browsing through an antique shop upstate somewhere and discovered a large book. Uh, which had the appearance of the, the old-time business ledger, and in opening the book, he discovered that it was a manifest. And I will explain that word manifest. Of the steamer Monitor, this same steamer of which we've already spoken. This manifest is a record of the day's business of the vessel. And I, if I remember correctly, I think this book covered two years' business around 1870. And in browsing through the book, I found a shipment made here in Stratford to my grandfather. There were many other vessels using the river through the years. The area of towboat of which we have a record was the Kate Miller, which was commanded by Captain Bray. She was followed by such boats as the Annie R. Wood, the Ellen Garrett, the Isis, the Stephen Babcock, the Mitchell Davis, and the Sightseers. And of course, today we have the Red Star tug from the Towing and Transportation Company of New York. The Commodore Jones, a vessel whose wreckage lives in Ferry creek I don't know how many of you ladies and gentlemen know what I mean when I refer to Ferry creek. That is the little creek that runs under the small bridge at Broad Street just before you reach the Housatonic River. This sloop was a vessel of 100 tons burden. She was built in Derby in 1830 to carry bricks on the Hudson River between Fishkill and New York. She was owned by Thomas Aldridge and her captain was John Pay of Fitchkill. When she reappeared on the Hudson, many years later, she was towed to Derby by the tug Evona, and loaded with stones to construct the breakwater at Norford Point. The contractor on this job was Thomas Anderson. It was started in 1890 and finished in 1914. While recording some of the Housatonic boats, we must mention the Continental. He was owned by Mr. Bedell Benjamin a wealthy citizen of Stratford. You probably all know the old house, uh, one of the first buildings you strike as you come off the Broad Street exit from the turnpike, the old big brick house as you come down through Broad Street. That was his mansion. Mr. Benjamin, in my opinion, was a frustrated towboat master. <laughs> Being financially able to indulge his hobby, he had this boat built. He was in every respect a bona fide towboat, but was fitted up as a yacht. He had a dock built on the riverbank between what was then Bedell shipyard and Bond's dock. And there he moored his towboat. He made quite a picture, leaning out of the wheelhouse window, his hand resting on the steering wheel, which, as I remember, was at least six feet in diameter. This boat was well known in this area in the early 1900s. I might add that uh, Mr. Benjamin, I was a pretty small sailor then, but uh, it seems to me he had the reputation of being a stickler for punctuality. If you were fortunate enough to be invited to take a sail on Mr. Benjamin's vessel and he said 2 o'clock and you arrived at 2.05, you would discover the boat on our way down the river and you were out of luck. I made that statement at the 1958 talk in the Booth Memorial. And our good friend, the late Sterling Vanel was present. And when I spoke of Mr. Benjamin's reputation for punctuality, Mr. uh, Vanel rose to his feet and requested permission to sail with, which was granted. And he stated that There was a compensation on the fact that Mr. Benjamin uh, required all his crew to be punctual. He said the refreshments served on that boat overcame any trouble that you might have in getting there a little early. (laughs) I didn't didn't question Mr. Vanell as what (laughs) he meant. I would also like to mention an industry once peculiar to Stratford. We recorded farther back in this story the huge shell deposit located near Milford Point. It was found in later years that if these shells were planted by the oyster growers upon their oyster bed in the sound, that the spawn from the oysters would set on these shells. Thus causing the spawn to remain upon the oyster bed and not drift away with the current. This was the start of our unique industry. Many of our well-known watermen engaged in this lucrative but man-killing business. Some of the names which come back to us from the early 1900s are John Goodfield, William Hubble, Charles Crane, Ren Smith, Wilber Hein, Robert Plum, Henry Fordham, Andy (coughs) McTaggart, and Charles Loper. All these men have passed on. The industry continued until a few years ago, but rising costs of salvaging the shells finally ended the business. In the old days, we find two docks mentioned as being located on the river. They were known as the Upper Dock and the Lower Dock. We know the Upper Dock as the coal dock or the dock which was located at the Dell Shipyard, now Fladen Cale. The Lower Dock, afterwards, became known as Bond Dock. The upper dock was originally the site of a phosphate manufacturing plant. This material was shipped from this dock to various points on the sound and adjacent waters. Later, this dock was used by the J.H. Bridge Coal Company of Shelton, Milford, and Stratford. It was last used as a coal dock by the Hall Coal Company of Stratford. It was finally purchased by the Bedell shipyard and, uh, as I have it recorded here, is now part of their docking system. Of course, Flat & Kale has taken over the Bedell shipyard and the dock is no longer in evidence at all. can't see it. The phosphate plant originally located on this dock was operated by Mr. Park who lived in the old house at East Broadway and Elm Street. From this dock, the steam canaler Iris ran to Derby, transporting the fertilizer to be used up the valley. In the 1800s, the lower dock, or Barnes Dock, was the scene of much large boat building. Moses Hart made a specialty of building oyster steamers at this location. Some of the better known of these boats were the Bond Courier, the Kate Stevens, and the Mikado. Some of those boats are still alive. Asheville Bond, owner of the Bond Courier, married Mr. Courier's daughter. And Mr. Courier furnished the money to build the Bond Courier. This boat is now known as the Louis R and is owned by the Raydell Oyster Company. Mr. Currier, at one time, operated the little grocery store at the foot of Stratford Avenue. Harold Lovell can remember that all right. In 1889, John Bond took over the Lower dock and established the training quarters for pugilists. Many of the best known prize fighters of that period were trained here. The most celebrated were Terry McGovern and Tommy Ryan. Our well-known late citizen Shang Wheeler served as sparring partner at this club. The dock is now used as a public dock by the town of Stafford. During World War I, six freight steamers were built at the Housatonic Shipbuilding Company, which was located just north of the railroad bridge on the west bank of the river. There were about 400 of these vessels built throughout the nation but uh, very few of them were ever completed as steamers. Incidentally uh, those of you who might remember in the floods of 55, uh, during the flood of 55, the first one we had a dredge working in the river known as the General and the uh, current was so swift and the, the judge was uh, made fast in a unseaworthy manner and she upset because she had to be removed from the place where she sank and uh, in order to do that the contractor brought a large barge into the river to use as a for the winters, and I thought that barge looked familiar, the hull, and I did some investigating, and I found that that barge was one of the steamers, one of the steamer hulls, which was built in the Housapanic River north of the railroad bridge back in World War One. <coughs> the best-known yards in operation in Stratford at present here we again go back to 1958. I have recorded here Biddell, formerly Peter White, and Flat and Kale. Now, Bedell's shipyard uh, was purchased from uh, this man by the name of Peter White, and it uh, was originally located on the bank of the Ferry Creek. And uh, as time went on, Mr. Bedell bought more property and expanded it as most of you ladies and gentlemen can remember it. When we mention Flat and Cale's yard, that is the old yard, we bring to mind the fact that the H.J. Lewis Oyster Company occupied this site in 1886. This company owned the largest number of acres, 8,000 in number, of Oyster Ground in Long Island Sound. This company later removed its business to Bridgeport where it is still located under another name. Boating enthusiasts on the river are served by several yacht clubs. The oldest club being the Housatonic, which is located on Shore Road near the Shakespeare Theater. This club was organized in 1887. The present clubhouse built at that time on the property of, was was built at that time on the property of FC Beach, was erected in 1888. It has since been moved slightly north of its original location. The Putituck Yacht Club was organized in 1898. The first clubhouse was on the property of Peter White near Ferry Creek. But when the Lewis Oyster Company moved to Bridgeport in 1902, its oyster house on the Housatonic Avenue was converted to a clubhouse. The club remained at this location until 1917 when the present building was erected. The Housatonic River has experienced some severe storms during the last century and a half, the first of which we have any record occurred in 1818 it was a full-fledged hurricane but concerning the extent of the damage we know little except that it did not cause as much destruction as the one in 1938 the next storm of note most of the present generation recall this was in september 1938 and ladies and gentlemen This is September 23rd, 1966. This is the 28th anniversary of the 1938 hurricane today. This was in September 1938 and caused extensive damage to the river and the town. Then we had a lesser hurricane in 1944 and in 1950, a southeast storm, which caused much damage to our waterfront. All of these storms in later years were shelling the river by carrying silt down the river and depositing it in our channel and anchorages. Then came the disastrous floods of 1955. The first one occurred in August of that year and caused great damage to boats and waterfront property. As if that were not sufficient punishment for our sins, October brought another flood more severe than the August storm. This last storm caused at least $2 million damage in our river. Luckily no lives were lost in this immediate area but up-river areas suffered many casualties. <coughs> this storm showed our anchorages to such an extent that it is now almost impossible to find suitable mooring areas for our boats. We live in hopes of having this situation corrected by dredging. No story of the tightwater water tonic, however brief, would be complete without mentioning the lighthouse at Stratford Point. The first record we have of an aid to navigation at this point was a bonfire on the beach. This was followed by an iron basket on a pole in which a fire was kept burning. In 1821, the first lighthouse was built. It was the third lighthouse on Long Island Sound. The original light burned whale oil, and later lard oil was used. The lens came from France, and was very expensive. It was a revolving white light with a 32nd flash, and was known as a 5th class light. In 1881, a new building and tower was erected, using the same lens. The fuel was changed to kerosene and is now electricity. It is 54 feet above high water. The fog bell on the early light was replaced in 1911 by a Typhon horn and that has now been discontinued. Descendants of the original keeper's family, the Buddingtons, are still active in boating on the river. In the 1930s, Stratford, in an endeavor to maintain a clean residential town, lost a lucrative source of tax revenue. The Connecticut Light and Power Company petitioned the town for permission to erect its powerhouse on the west bank of the river in Stratford. The opposition to this plea was so strong that the petition was denied. The company immediately made a similar request to the town of Milford, which was granted. Stratford now has just as much dirt as if the plant was located here and receives nothing in the way of compensation from Milford's largest taxpayer. (laughs) Recreational boating is increasing so rapidly, not to predict the activities to take place on our river in the future is impossible. Many of our citizens are opposed to further commercializing of the banks of the Housatonic, but I suppose that we must bow to progress and it is possible that someday our (coughs) river may look like the Pequenic in Bridgeport. I hope I do not live that long. (laughs) It seems that the valley has waged a 300 year battle to preserve its natural beauty. It is phenomenal that a valley so well adapted to industry and flanked on the east and on the west by two of the earth's most industrialized areas should be able to preserve so much of its natural beauty. From the year 1820 to 1870, the valley flourished with industry. The power for the factories was derived from the river. But by the end of this period, much of the manufacturing ceased, and the valley regained its battle to eliminate industry on its banks and above tidewater, returned to its former scenic beauty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Lewis. It's been most informative. And for some of us that did not hear you in 1958, we really are very grateful that you came tonight. And we will present to you at some later time this tape as soon as we make That's another... i kind episode. of it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see anybody working uh, off and. Uh, <laughs> And, um, I didn't,
0: I didn't hear any
2: snoring. No. I'm sure you did. not thank no, you no, very
0: no. much.